Welcome back to On a Friday. It's still season two. I don't know why it wouldn't be. Uh, I'm back here with my co-host Andrew, and today is a very special episode because we have a guest. Guest, say Introduce your name. yourself right now. <laughs> say your name. My name is Os. Smus. We have our boy Smus, who we mentioned at the end of the last episode very briefly. I wow. don't know that he knows that. We um, are like a book. <laughs> foreshadowing yeah, uh, characters. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, Smus has been one of our friends for about as long as we've been friends with each other, probably coming up on about 10 years, maybe a little bit more than that. Known him for a while, always been in a lot of the same online friend groups. And we wanted to have him on for our first guest episode where we're going to be covering the Beach Boys' 1966 album, Pet Sounds, because he talks about this album a lot, and we know he really likes it, and he'll probably have a lot of really smart things to say about it. Believe it or not, this episode has been planned in well over a year in advance. That is true. <laughs> we, we were planning to do this before we went on hiatus last season. So, Samus, uh, tell us what you feel about this album. How, how, like, what does it mean to you? You know, that kind of thing. It's the greatest album of all time. Damn. Better than Sgt. Pepper's. That's Holy a hot take. Holy shit. We are, we are starting off hot from the gate. <laughs> Would you say it's better than Revolver? I have not listened to Revolver yet, so I can't say. Ah, okay. Those are both Beatles albums for kids at home. I've only <laughs> listened to, like, I've listened to Sgt. Pepper's and Pet Sounds, and I just say that Pet Sounds is better. Mm. Damn. We just, we just started with a hot take. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, so... Uh, given that it is a guest episode, it'll be a bit of an experiment this time around, as it always is. We think we're going to skip over the news and all the other introductory stuff and just, like, get right into it. Because, you know, that's that's why Smuts is here. And... For all you historians, don't worry, today's date is 7 What the fuck? Answered the news here. What the fuck? <laughs> what? I like it. If you're listening at home in, in the future from the Library of Congress where this podcast is archived... This is, this is gonna be my running gag for this season yeah, that we're for some reason in the library of congress yeah um, i think that will be this season's yeah. thing <laughs> anyways pet sounds 1966 beach boys album this was a bit into their career and what always strikes me about it is like so these are the same guys that did surf in usa and i get around and california girls well, which is crazy right. yeah so like I think the how this is how it works with the Beach Boys. Brian writes all the music. It's like nobody else does it. It's just him. Like he would like what how he does it is that he he would make he would write something like for every song they work on. Um, I think it was it was actually starting like 1964. Dude had a mental breakdown on an airplane on their way to Houston, and apparently he just like he told the band he's just gonna stay home and, and write music for the band, you know, while they just tour. And that's how they got. That's how they ran into Bruce Johnston. They're a, um, a bass player, keyboardist. They they wanted to get a, a guy to replace Brian Wilson on, the, on their touring, so Brian can stay home and do all the music. They didn't start with Pet Sounds, actually. I think they did like two or three albums before Pet Sounds when they started to like incorporate different sounds in their music. Otherwise, I think you know it's just it's all him. Wow, I wasn't fully aware of that because like at least looking at Pet Sounds, like yeah, almost everything is like at least co-written by Brian. But then there are like other writers. But yeah, I guess he is on pretty much everything. But I didn't know that also applied to like some of the stuff prior to it. 
Hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, a majority of this album was inspired by the Beatles' 1965 album, Rubber Soul. Yeah, it was like late 65. He he heard Rubber Soul, and I think it actually says right here, if I can find it, he said it was challenged when um, when he heard, listened to Rubber Soul, and he thought he could do better than that, you know? And I, and that's in the, when the Beatles heard it, heard beat the Pet Sounds, like I think Bruce Johnston went to the UK to promote um, Pet Sounds, and I think John Lennon and Paul McCartney were present in a hotel room, and he just basically played the whole, the mono of it, you know, it's at the time that that's what they had. They didn't have a stereo until like 19, the 1990s. So um, he played the mono in the hotel room, and that's when Paul McCartney fell in love with it. And then that's when they decided to work on, they started working on the Sgt. Peppers. Well, that was later on, though. I mean, because like, I think... He Eventually, the Beach Boys came out with good vibrations, and that's when the Beatles started working on it, because like, they started recording the album right after Good Vibrations came out. I've always liked how it's kind of like a back and forth, you know, like like you talk about like music rivalries, which nowadays are all like fucking diss tracks one after another. But like back in the day, it was like, now I'm going to put out this really good album. And then another band's going to top it with their album. And then another band's going to try to top it with theirs too, the original band. And so it kind of just became a back and forth between like Rubber Soul, Pet Sounds, and then Sgt. Pepper, which is really interesting. Right. And then, so to my understanding, a big draw of Pet Sounds is using uh, convicted murderer Phil Spector's wall of sound technique. Although the album was produced solely by founding member Brian Wilson, not Phil Spector, but he did use this technique. It's such a killer sound, you know. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> All right, dude. So, it, it's a killer um, sound. yeah. So, like I said, like, um, long history behind that, you know, like long before they started working on Pet Sounds, he was already inspired by Spectre and his like wall of sound technique, and the collective of musicians that played on that album were actually previously worked for Phil Spectre. So. Like if you were to look at the credits for a song like uh, "Be My Baby" by the Ronettes, that's mm-hmm. that's all. That's a Phil Spector record. In fact, that song is oh my gosh, that song is probably Brian Wilson's favorite, like to this day. Really? That, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. He made a response song um, in the night, like around since 1964, called um, "Don't Worry, Baby." And you can even tell if you listen to both of them. It's just they're very similar in sound. But anyway, yeah, he was inspired by Phil Spector, of all people. And he decided to recuperate that same collective of musicians and make his own version of the Wall of Sound. And, you know, you, I can personally say that he surpassed him. That was basically his goal. It surpassed Phil Spector's Wall of Sound. I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that wholeheartedly. <laughs> So I've also heard this album described as one of the earliest concept albums, and I kind of want your take on that. Do you do you consider this a concept album? And if so, what is the concept? I actually don't know. I mean, because I guess, it, like you said, it's an early example. So it's not like, you know, the kind of you would hear from like a artist like Pink Floyd or, you know, any other band, if you think about it. Yeah. My take on that, I, I really don't know, because there's a storyline after storyline with these songs, you know, mm-hmm. like mostly ballads, mostly love ballads. Like, you know, God Only Knows, um, one song talks about how growing up, another song talks about growing up with a woman, another song talks about, you know, what life would be without that woman, you know, God Only Knows. Um, yeah. Another song talks about like a man warning another man about a woman that he once was with, because apparently... <laughs> <laughs> there's the a, a woman is that woman is trouble like you may like that woman but i was with her by 120 so yeah and i don't i don't think you're gonna like her so that was that's here today 
Um, and I, I just wasn't made for these times. That talks about like just not adapting to society. You just you just feel very isolated. You just you don't feel like you can adapt to society. You know you don't you feel you're too advanced for for people to understand. Just Brian Wilson, I think he most he must have wrote that spe- like specifically about himself because he feels he's too advanced. Maybe his band doesn't understand his music. Nobody understands his music. I guess he probably wrote that personally. And um, Caroline, no, that's the, the closer. It talks about how um, seeing a woman after years, seeing how she's changed after all these years, you know, it's really just since it's an early example, I think it's just a storyline after a storyline. It's not really just like a, a, a concrete story, like, you know, how um, like yeah. pink, like with like the wall, like how it talks about some guy's life. He just has three instances in his life until he decides to make a mental wall to just isolate himself from society. This is more so just one storyline after another with every track that goes on. I don't think it's really a concept album personally because all of it feels like it could have been like autobiographical i guess in a way and because of that nature of this album i mean like you said it would probably be one of the earliest concept albums if it is one i just kind of see it more like not even that at all but rather like a really straightforward album from a writer who's probably been around people and basically the whole album just kind of revolves around this person's experiences So that's just kind of the way I see it personally. Yeah, I kind of agree. And a lot of people say like the same thing about like Sgt. Pepper, how it's also like an early concept album. But also with that one, I also just have a hard time seeing any kind of like connecting thread. Well, Sgt. Pepper, I think, I don't even know. I think Paul McCartney must have had an idea for to make a fictional band. And then he decided to, and then it came in the form of Sgt. Pepper's. And then with every other new, like, I think just those first two tracks, because like the way I see it, there's two tracks that have the same name and i would assume that's the opener and that's the closer and then the last song would be a day in a life but like i feel like it's just it's almost like pet sounds in a way it's a, it's one storyline after another you know yeah all the songs are like kind of disconnected on Sgt. Yeah. pepper anyway for me personally i first listened to this album about two years ago uh because i haven't logged on my daily albums log for april 30th 2020 i'm sure that was just because i needed something to listen to and you were probably talking about it a lot that day and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to listen to it. And I did. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> a little fun fact is that actually this album was released on uh, May 16th. So I actually share a birthday with it. I forgot about that. That's oh, happy cool. birthday. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. It's not, it's not May 16th right now. <laughs> <Happy> but birthday. <laughs> OK, Andrew. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's not that I I mean, I don't know if I felt like I still share a spiritual connection with it, but that was just a coincidence. I just. Right around 2019 is when I started listening to Pet Sounds like in full, and I, that's when I started to understand the album and it's like in its content and everything like that. And then um, that's when I found out like around 2020 is that I share a birthday with it, and then I wanted to buy the LP and hopefully it got delivered on my birthday when I turned 20. It actually came the day before, but uh, I guess yeah. I, I, I I didn't. Yeah, I was I was kind of upset about that, but I, I guess I, I I let it slide. I mean, I didn't really care. That's your last chance, universe. At least it, at least it didn't come late. I mean, I exactly. get to play it on my birthday either way. Honestly. Any other background information you want to give on it before we get into the tracks? I have one. The official stereo mix didn't exist until like the late 90s. Yeah, the sessions. Um, The backstory behind it is that Brian Wilson, I guess he had like an ear problem and he can only hear like audio from his one ear. So he made the whole thing mono because at least then you could hear the whole sound in one fell swoop instead of having to separate instruments and pan them on different sides of the ear. I mean, that's just... That's interesting. Yeah, I, I guess I don't know if something happened in his childhood or whatnot. I mean, a lot of the records by the Beach Boys were, were made in mono because of the fact mm-hmm. that he had a bit of an ear problem. But later on, I think in the 90s, 
when Pet Sounds was getting more attention. I mean, it was getting attention in the 60s, but it wasn't getting attention from the United States. The label, Capitol Records, they questioned it. The general fans of the Beach Boys at the time, they questioned it. It wasn't commercially successful, didn't meet their expectations until the UK heard about it. When the UK heard about it, they loved it. It was on a news article. They called it the most progressive pop album ever. That was like the exact headline. And then I think the Beatles, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, they loved it. And then, you know, it was just the UK was the reason why, you know, Pet Sounds is like up there that they loved the record. But the United States, they didn't like it. That got me thinking, like, in a way back then, if your main audience didn't like it, at least the UK would have liked it if you lived in the US or vice versa, possibly. But I think like most UK artists, if they do gain success in the UK, they're probably stuck there. Because for whatever reason, there's like a weird thing about how like music travels, where like, you know, trends don't exactly line up. Hey, and if you're not successful in the US or the UK, you'll probably hit it really big in Japan. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> or Germany. Of course. Another little fun fact, during the production, I think the first half of the production of Pet Sounds, that's actually where the other band members were at. They were touring in Japan. And then if you look at the back cover on, on a CD or, a, or LP, you'll see that there, there are photographs of them in Japan. That's where they were at the time. And those pho there's photographs of Brian and there's photographs of the rest of the band in Japan. Wasn't there one of the band members that wasn't present in the photo shoot for the album? Bruce. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't present, but he was present on the album. He was in God only knows. And all he was in he was present on the album and uh, he was he did some vocal work for God only knows. So I I mean, maybe he wasn't present for the photo shoot, but oh well, I mean, it doesn't really matter. You want to know who his idea was? Like who, who whose idea was to title that this, um, album Pet Sounds? Who? It was Mike's it wasn't even Brian? It was Mike's idea to call it Pet Sounds. Uh, Mike that is love. Mike's legacy at this moment. Frickin' Mike yeah. love. Fuck. Oh, it yeah. better Kokomo. be. God knows nothing else should be his legacy. He's oh, kind of God. an asshole now. He's kind of a dickwad. God only knows what would have happened if Kokomo didn't exist. <laughs> hey, fuck you. Kokomo's a good song. Kokomo is not a good song. <laughs> Kokomo peaked when Kermit covered it, and that was it. And you and know And you're it. right. I agree. That's why I know that song from that fucking Muppet special. <laughs> I mean, Mike Love, he's, he's just, he's the only band member who doesn't play instruments, but he's also the one, the primary lyricist. So he will always question what the lyrics are. And that was, and that especially goes for when they were making Smile. I mean, I'm sure you probably have heard the stories about that, but he, he can see constantly question the lyrics because I think the one who was responsible for this album was Tony Asher, the lyricist, I mean, and the one who was responsible for Smile was Von Dyke Parks. He constantly questioned the lyrics. I know there's an answer. Wasn't originally called that. It was called Hang On To Your Ego, had references to the drugs and everything. He did not want, he did not like that. Classic Mike Boy, if, if this were the everything. 80s, that song would have never changed. And there's one <laughs> more thing. I'm waiting for today. He only revised five words in that song, and the song was already copyrighted for Brian as a solo composition, meaning he was a sole writer and producer. Like, that means he wrote all the lyrics, and he was the, re the sole record producer. All Mike Love did was write, was revise five words, and he still wanted credit. <laughs> also, what was the fuck were the five words? I don't know. It's probably like the end of the song. I, I, I was just like looking at, he wrote a lot of like the song endings. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm. I didn't know that. My thing is there was like a whole, like this whole lawsuit, you know, with all these, I mean, I understand with other songs that he wasn't credited for, but this song, I don't understand why he would want to, he want credit for this if he only revised five words, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's all I got to say. Money. Oh, uh, fuck Mike Love.
Yeah, he's a... <laughs> my glove? Fuck my glove. No, don't Fuck do that. My... Don't like oh, that. No. <laughs> Why'd you say that? Oh, not, now, now I, now I can't hear said. that. I said now, my now, glove, now I can't hear it. Say. He just added those words and it just became so much worse. <laughs> Anyways, if that's all, as far as background information goes, why don't we hop into the album with track one, Wouldn't It Be Nice, the third and final single, Ah Yes, a song about young love. I can totally relate, right, my fellow legal adults? Haha, <laughs> yes, as a drinking adult, I do relate. So wouldn't it be nice? Let's see here. Another song with Mike Love contribution. That's another song that he um, fought to get <laughs> songwriting credit for. <laughs> did he get he it? Did. Yeah, he did. Uh, he, he won the kit. There, there was a number of songs that were, um, that were listed in the lawsuit. And then he, he, he won, ultimately. Like, they were all copyrighted, like, years before, before they were even released. So it's kind of weird for him to get copyright credit if he didn't have that much contribution. But otherwise, you know, he he still got he still got the credit nonetheless. That is weird. Anyway, yeah, wouldn't it be nice? It's power pop, you know, it's not too psychedelic like the rest of the album. And it talks about, you know, two young lovers, they're just fantasizing and imagining what their their future would be. You know, they talk about, wouldn't it be nice if we were older, that we wouldn't have to wait so long? Yeah, it's definitely one of those songs with a sort of, like, lyrical and musical juxtaposition, which I've talked about liking before. Specifically how it's done here, where it's, like, an upbeat song with, when you look at them, kind of sad lyrics, they want more out of their relationship, but they can't have it because of some social stigma or legal boundary because of their age. Uh, yeah, and exactly. The, 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 well, like when you say boundaries, is my, I mean the, they're referring to like they don't have a lot of freedom as, and for their relationship, and that's exactly what this song is talking about. It specifically talks about their romantic freedom as they grow older. I just thought that like this was a really strong opener, um, and that it introduces what kind of like what's to come with the rest of the album pretty well in a very accessible way. Yeah. At the same time, though, it's one of those songs that you just hear so many times throughout your life whether on the radio or in TV shows and movies, that I feel it kind of, it's kind of hard to judge it positively or negatively. It just feels so beyond that, you know? It Like, it's good, don't get me wrong, but it's not something I'd, like, crank up if it came on, you know? It's too um, omnipotent. Omnipresent. Uh, omnipresent? <laughs> omnipresent. Omnipotent means it, it, like, knows all and sees all. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> Omnipresent. It's there. It's a song. It's just there, you know? The, no, omnipresent. I, I, omnipresent. <laughs> Fuck. Omnipresent meaning it's everywhere, Captain. Oh, I'm, well, I would say it's omnipotent <laughs> anyway. I don't care. Fuck. It's not sentient. How can it be omnipotent if it's not sentient? Okay, fine. I get it. I get it. Don't worry. <laughs> it doesn't need to be uh, sentient. I swear. To be omnipotent? Yes, it does. Okay, <laughs> whatever. whatever. Uh, <laughs> Omnipresent. The only other things, the only other things I'll say is I really like the chorus, especially the slower one at the end. And the ending kind of gives me ELO vibes with how Mike Love delivers the final lines. But I do feel the need to complain about the bridge, where I feel like the instrumentation and backing vocals are a little bit too loud and overpowering Brian's lead vocals. It encapsulates the album as a whole. I mean, like Andrew said, it's a great opener. You know, it just oh, it just opens the album strong. I mean, you don't even know what to you don't know what else to expect. But like when you when you hear this song, you're just like, oh, this is going to be one hell of a record, you know. And I think I guess that's what the the band was really going for when they released this, you know. And yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy if you think about it. And it, when this was released as a single, it was released alongside God Only Knows. So it's good. Track two, you still believe in me. A relatively simple ballad about a man who keeps screwing up but has a forgiving partner. 
It's a really interesting parallel coming off the last song where they wanted to act like adults even though they weren't, but instead here he's trying to maintain an adult relationship but can't help but give in to his more childish tendencies. I mostly look into You Still Believe in Me as like one of the most sophisticated uh, compositions throughout the album. And I mean, and that's just how it is with the rest of the album. It's just all just sophisticated when it comes to the compositions. I'm not sure if you even hear it um, at, at first, but you might have heard like a bicycle horn. And I think when I yeah. look into that, I look into that very like deeply as in like, this is like a, a song that's really nostalgic. Oh, even it says right here, and it con- initially conceived as in my childhood. So it's, it's a childhood song. Bike sounds. Bike sounds. Should have been titled Bike Sounds. Bike sounds. Bike sounds featuring bike love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. It's awful. Mike bike. Mike bike. <laughs> so dumb. This is the kind of humor we usually have on these. So you're, it's good. Um, once again, I really like the ending where most of the lyrical content is over, even though there's still like a minute left in the song. As opposed to the last album we talked about, the falsetto vocals here actually sound good and fit with the song. And then there's that fake ending that like jumps back out at you. It's really cool. It's probably because it fits well with the uh, instrumental. It has a big influence on Paul. The thing about that is, you know, oh yeah, because like he says right here, like Paul McCartney regarded this as one of his favorite songs and pet sounds among some others. <laughs> right, right. <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> Track three, That's Not Me. This one's really interesting with Mike Love taking on most of the lead vocals. And although I generally prefer Brian's vocals, Mike does sound really good here. Mike Love is lead vocals primarily, but there are some times where they combine vocals together, but him and Brian. And there's also another thing to consider. Unlike the rest of the album, the sassy musicians, the Wrecking Crew, were not involved in this, in the, in the making of this song. This song, if you look in the um, credits, the uh, personnel of That's Not Me, it's just the band themselves. Let me if I can just find it right here. Yeah, so only on three other members three other instrumentalists were involved in the making of, in the in the in this in this song otherwise the rest the whole band this is just a whole band this is a more so that's why it's more conventional more of a conventional rock song more of a traditional beach boys song you know mike love and as in lead vocals and it's just a band playing themselves it's not just you know i don't know whose idea it was to make this song but otherwise it's just basically um a traditional beach boys song in in, in this case What really carries this song, in my opinion, is the instrumentation and backing vocals. I didn't talk about it much on the last two songs, but much like a lot of popular music in the 60s, the background vocal harmonies are really complex, and honestly, they're kind of more fun to listen to than the lead vocals. It's like, I don't want a purely instrumental version of these songs, but I think I'd really enjoy an instrumental that also has those backing vocals, you know? Yeah, the backing vocals, when it comes to that's just, that's really their specialty, I mean... Especially when you were listening to an earlier song that came out on a previous album, California Girls, that mm-hmm. you had like both the acapella and the instrumental. I mean, just are just exquisite in their own right. And if you were to combine them together, obviously, as the California Girls would be the final product of that. But it just sounds great individually. It's because like that's just what they're really good at, you know. With Brian Wilson composing the shit, he even instructs the band to do vocals, and then most of the vocal work is actually done by him. Lyrics are by Mike, but Basically, Brian does the vocal work. Like, he actually instructs the band to, like, you know, to do, to sound like this. And, of course, that's obvious since he's a record producer, you know. I can hear, like, a lot of uh, Brian Wilson's influence in a lot of other music. Um, Even, like, nowadays, like, stuff like, um, there's this one electronic artist, uh, Paradis, I believe, or something like that. Where, like, the vocal melodies are, like, very complex, even for, like, an electronic song. 
I don't know, it really reminds me of like the way that like Brian Wilson composes the band singing and how far its influence has reached even to today's time and still ongoing, basically. That's one thing that they're always they're all good at is just harmonies, you know. I mean even Paul McCartney said once in a documentary, I'm not sure if you've seen Paul McCartney one, two, three, like I have, yeah. I still need yeah, to Yeah, Rick Rubin, I'll just briefly spoil it. He Rick Rubin on the first episode, I asked him like, "Are there any other influences were, um, on harmonies besides, you know, one man?" He's so right off the bat, he just said Beach Boys. He didn't even he didn't even hesitate. He just said Beach Boys, and they showed a footage from Good Vibrations, and it was just like, "Good lord," <laughs> you know. And he was talking about how um, Rubber Soul inspired Brian to write Pet Sounds, and then Pets, and he said he loved Pet Sounds, and he just it's just he just he, even to this day, guys. I mean, it is he, he he loves the record. My only complaint with this song is I don't think that the fade out at the end works. I feel like they could have ended the song in a different way, like having the melodic instrumental and powerful drums coming to some sort of conclusion. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I felt like uh, the the fade out in the last song, I forgot to mention, it also like it was way too abrupt, in my opinion. I don't know if you wanted to work with any other ways to conclude the songs on the album because the way i see it every song has a fade out yeah every song on this album every does. song on this album is, has and a fade sometimes out, so. it works in my opinion sometimes it doesn't yeah i think it worked for the mass majority of the tracks i just didn't feel like it worked very well for like at least these two songs possibly because i didn't seem to notice it on like the other ones as much or it didn't feel as forced but that's just my opinion track four don't talk put your head on my shoulder I feel like Brian is trying to tell us that his love language is physical touch. I thought that the progression of this song was very good. Um, I really like this track. Fun fact about this is that um, while he was composing the song, he did the vocals for it, you know, make his, like, made, made his own harmonies to give the um, session musicians an idea how to play it. I don't even know if I can find it. I don't know if it's still up on YouTube, but he gave it to those session musicians, the wrecking crew, as a rundown how to play for the song. That is incredible. It's kind of insane. I'm a big fan of this one, even though I think it has the same problem as the last one with the fade out at the end. It more than makes up for it with the absolutely beautiful orchestrated instrumentation and really soothing vocal melody. I particularly like how in the first chorus he says, take my hand and let me hear your heartbeat, implying she puts his hand on her heart. But on the second one, it changes to take my hand and listen to my heartbeat, implying that she then puts his hand on his own heart and they're feeling each other's heartbeats together. God, that is like so strangely one of the most romantic visuals that a song has ever put in my mind it's really subtle but really incredible lyricism yep that's the power of tony asher i mean he, he brian wilson was looking for none and nothing but the best for this record you know it was his goal was to make the greatest rock record you know a cohesive album with no filler tracks and like i mentioned before like the harmony like it's 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 among the most harmonically complex songs he's ever composed in his career you guys have heard the song already so you guys understand that this is in fact very complex in harmony I feel like a majority of the album is complex. It's very layered. Track 5, I'm Waiting for the Day. This is instrumentally all over the place, but in a good way. It starts off with really powerful drums, but then alternates between being really soft during the first verse and chorus, and then alternating with the returning hammering drums. So I'm waiting for today. I have already mentioned this before, but I'll reiterate that the lyricist was originally just credit to Brian. But um, like I said before, Mike Love said he revised, oh, not five, eight words in, in, the, in the original. Um, yeah, eight, <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. Even more petty. It's, Even it's, more it's, petty. It's, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. So the song itself was originally copyrighted in 1964, like long before even this conceived it. And um, there's this this thing called Sea of Tunes Publishing. I think something that Wilson and his dad like like wanted to do just to acquire more funds from it. You know, just from every, every song they work on, every original song they conceive. It's just you know, it's something that they would that would help them in the long run. And um, what his father didn't want him to do was to credit Mike. It was just Brian, you know. And I guess Mike must have like caught notice of it in the, in the 90s when they filed a lawsuit against um, Brian. Now, that's why all those songs are have those credits. I mean, with this song in particular, it doesn't make any sense. It's only eight words. And out of how many words on this track? I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. It's just, uh, I don't think he should be, he's worthy of being credited just, just because he revised eight words. That's That's ridiculous now. Your Honor, it wasn't five words. It was eight words. <laughs> <laughs> Your Honor, I only changed one word. Please. Literally hear Mike Love saying that. It's terrible. I want my money, thank you. Like You be- Still Believe in Me, I think this song has a very nostalgic sound as well. There's a portion of the song that has like, there's like an instrumental take of it. And then there's vocals with uh, Brian and Dennis, and then there's Mike. I thought that was very nostalgic. I thought that was a really nice touch that he put onto the song. And another thing is that he didn't even like the song himself. Like he, his vocal work, he he, he was he undermined his vocal work on this song. Uh, Brian, he thought he could do a little better than that, but he simply did not like it. I didn't really like this song until the end. Like you, when when there's that short pause and then the fucking drums kick back in. I I didn't yeah. really enjoy it up until that moment. And I I think it was probably because like for me at least lyrically it didn't sit very well with me personally yeah lyrically it's it's weird i mean a man is basically he falls in love with a woman but the woman's already with a man and so he he basically waits for the day when that woman is ready to fall to commit a relationship with him he's like he hurt you then but that's all gone and (laughs) don't worry i'm gonna kiss you and i'll make it all better i swear okay i get where you're coming from but I mean, it, it kind of goes back to the same thing as like, wouldn't it be nice does where it's that kind of juvenile kind of love thing. Because it's like, it's once again, a love song that honestly, for me, takes me back to like my high school days. I'm sure a lot of people can like relate to having a crush on somebody who's already in a relationship. And then when they break up, you want to like be there for them, but you don't think it's appropriate to make a move. I think it's con- it's conveyed really well in the line. I'm waiting for the day when you can love again. Oh, yeah. Wait, this guy's either 16 or 18 throughout the entire like album i don't know about the entire but yeah uh, yeah the lyrics on this album are doing a really similar thing to sour by olivia rodrigo where they're describing really juvenile feelings that love can bring about in people especially from the perspective of a young person the only difference being that olivia was 17 when most of her songs were written while brian was what 24 so it's very much a retrospective kind of look at young love as opposed to an in the moment one but it works just as well it's like he's talking about like his experiences you know from years back maybe like he had this kind of attitude when he was younger or whatnot but like the way i see it i think with um this song as well this doesn't really just talk about a woman in a relationship rather it's more like a woman who is recovering from a past relationship maybe her previous lover she wasn't satisfied maybe she maybe she was abusive maybe he he didn't like they didn't have the same morals they didn't have the same you know interest and they just maybe they argued a lot and she was probably just recovering from that and then i think the man in in, described in the song he was probably just waiting for that day where she 
finally, you know, recovers and is ready to make another, have another relationship with another man. This guy needs to, like, raise his self-esteem. He wants to be the rebound. I don't get it. Oh, trust me. If this is all the same guy, I think his self-esteem is fine based on later songs. <laughs> Remember one thing. This is Brian's lyrics. Like, he doesn't usually write lyrics, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so okay. that's another thing to consider. So if you have if you have a problem with the lyrics, then <laughs> I mean it's it's Brian. He's not he's not a he's not a good lyricist. Take it up with Brian Wilson or potentially Mike Love for his eight words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They should have just kept Astro on all the lyrics. I don't know if he was busy. I don't know, but all I can say is that he was. It was this is all Brian, I guess. Like I said, I think the reason why he wasn't involved because, like I said, this song was already copyrighted as a solo composition before it was even made. Like I said, it was it was already copyrighted in 1964. So already legally, it would be Brian as the lead as a sole writer and producer. Well, if you're getting sick of lyrics, next we have track six. Let's go away for a while. The shortest song on the album at two minutes and twenty five seconds which isn't so bad since it's fully instrumental. Yes, this is the first of the two instrumentals on the album. In comparison to every composition he's written in his career, this is probably his favorite, like Brian Wilson's favorite, and he specifically stated, he based this chord progression, he based all the whole composition, it was all influenced by the work of uh, Burt Bacharach, I'm not sure if you know who that is. No. I don't. You don't know who Burt Bacharach is? No. No. Have any of you heard of the song it's by um tom jones what's new pussycat yes yes of course <laughs> i mean it's not, i mean that's not unusual i mean it's shut the fuck no, up no 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 not that one well i what's know but pussycat? i'm just saying you know i'm just you know it's, yeah. a, it's a non-secular you gotta play you know. it 37 times on the on the bar jukebox <laughs> so burt Bacharach was the composer for that song he composed it oh yeah, and there's even another song. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen Spider-Man too, but there's this one song yeah. called um, "Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head." Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm slightly more. Familiar. Also, also composed by Burt Bacharach. Wow, that's awesome. That's an iconic scene. I know. So he was in, he was he was heavily inspired by his work, and that's I think "Let's Go Away for a While" was an example of him of his inspiration. I've noticed that he tends to play pretty heavy into repetition, but does it in a pretty really interesting way where it doesn't get stale. I mean, unless you play it seven times, of course. <laughs> or eight times, in Mike Love's case. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna be honest, I was wondering if somebody had sampled this song yet. I'm sure. I'm sure somebody did. You guys should look up this guy named Bullion. He basically took this whole album made and made it into like a hip-hop style, as a, like, like what Jay Dilla would really? do. Yeah, I can believe that. This album is... I think would be a masterful hip hop record if sampled. Yeah, the right. album is called Pet Sounds in the Key of D. So if you look that up, I want to hear that. That sounds either. I don't know if that sounds really good or really bad. I don't know. It's it's it really good. It depends on the execution. It, I think it's really good. He basically took sounds from the sessions, like because you know the sessions both have acapella and instrumental of the album. He even took recordings from you know what they say during the sessions, and he mixed it together and made it to like a hip hop record in the style of Jay Dilla. And that's basically um, what Pet Sounds in the Key of D is. So if you want to listen to that later on, you guys can go ahead and look it up on YouTube. It's up there. I'm not one to usually talk about purely instrumental songs. That's more of Andrew's area of expertise. But it's nice. It's soothing. I wouldn't go as far as to call it ambient, but I could definitely see someone trying to fall asleep to it. And not in like an insulting way, like how Andrew said it on the last album. I will say this, in tiers of instrumentals, I would say Brian Wilson's probably at the top. Yeah, I mean, I agree. But like this one, this one's fine. 
Yeah. But I think that there have been better songs already that could have worked as pure instrumentals rather than this one. I also don't know why Brian decided to have it fade out rather than end, given that it's all orchestration. But I digress. I don't know. I I, I feel like in a weird way, I don't know why, like, why, like, there's such a prevalent use of fade outs, actually, the more I think about it, because, like, when I think of fade outs, I think of like hard rock, right? Like yeah. 80s hard rock, yeah. usually, or like even like late 70s, they would have this fade out. I, I, that got me wondering. I just find it weird how it's used commonly here. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still think that this album flows well. I just think all of these songs are the ones that with the fade outs could have at least a conclusive ending. Track seven, Sloop John B, the second single, and finally, Not a Love Song. Yes, the closer of Side A. I mean, this is the only song on the album that wasn't original. Yeah, it's a cover of an old folk song from the Bahamas, which is very on brand for the Beach Boys vibes before this album. Yeah, they thought they would be. it would be a good idea to make a song like this to support the album's release. You know, they released it as a single and then... And they, um, he was actually reluctant. Wilson was reluctant to release this on the album because it didn't fit the tone, as you, as you guys. Because <laughs> think about it for a moment. Yeah. We're talking about the seventh track on the album. We're already seven tracks in, and, th- and then this song pops up. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I'm going to tell you this. I didn't really care for that track. Also, I'm going to read oh. out a comment. She sloop on my John. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> what? That's too... <laughs> Andrew, you have no idea how much I'm going to take the soundbite of you saying that and use it out of context. Uh, in that case, she she sloop on my John B. It's there worse. we go. It's worse. It worse. That's even worse, dude. Um, God damn it, Andrew. You did it again. Why? Because what honestly, I... this is probably my favorite one so far. <laughs> oh, I just, I agree with Brian's opinion, though. Well, for me, it's just, it's a certified banger about sailors getting drunk and fighting and getting arrested and the cook throwing away their grits and eating their corn for some reason. And I know that that might be mildly insulting given that Brian didn't even write this song, but I think that this one in particular really highlights what the Beach Boys were especially good at, like the vocal harmonies and alternating who gets lead vocals on what verse between Brian and Mike. Also, this is the first song where I think having a fade out actually improves the song, because the fade finishes right at the end of a chorus, so even though it faded, it still feels finished. I hate when songs finish fading out in the middle of a chorus, you know? I'm gonna say much better than a a rock song where it just plays the last four chords over and over again over a solo. Well, you know how Brian is. I mean, the whole song was arranged by Brian, so even though it wasn't originally written by Brian, it was still he still gathered the wrecking crew to compose the to play. So it's, that's why it sounds the way it does, you know. Another thing is that Alger Dine of the the, the, Be- of the Beach Boys, he was another reason as to why this song, you know, made it on the album. He really wanted Brian to finish this rec- this song and put it on the album. Track eight. God Only Knows, not actually a single, in the US anyway. Instead, it was the B-side to Wouldn't It Be Nice. However, several countries instead had God Only Knows as the A-side and Wouldn't It Be Nice as the B-side. So, you could also call this the third and final single. Yep, this is everyone's favorite. I don't know what I could personally say other than it's a classic. I simply said everyone's favorite because this is the most covered Beach Boy song. Of all the songs they've done, this is the most covered I, I would you can go to like the page say list of of covered Beach Boy songs. God only knows has its own fucking section and even goes past it. Like there are so many people who've covered this song. If you listen to the um Pet Sounds in the key of D, the God only knows song, it, it, it starts off with a cover of God only knows. I mean I heard too many covers of this song already and now it's great. So 
let's start off with the composition. That's really what they still would, would have started with. You know, the lyrics are going to, we'll focus on that later. The reason why this song is so acclaimed, I think mostly is because of its sophisticated composition, as with the rest of the, the album. But this song specifically has um, a weak tonal center. It competes between the keys of E and A. It's just, it doesn't want to, most songs would have its own, has like a, a specific key, but this one fights. So it doesn't actually stay on one key. And you guys probably have noticed it um, as you've listened to it. It doesn't like, it has this doesn't have a specific key. Yeah. It's very interesting how he composed this. This is actually one of the first few songs that Brian Wilson conceived after listening to Rubber Soul. I didn't know that. I thought yeah. that its usage, usage of uh, vocal melodies were very, very interesting because towards the end, it, it uses a counterpoint. And I feel like that, to me, it enhances this track. And so I, I've always thought this track is really interesting musically because, as you said, it, it's sophisticated, but it's really accessible which surprises me and i, I don't think any uh, to me I, I find it difficult to believe anyone other than brian wilson could have wrote this song so because of that like i oh, yeah. I, I, I always think it's interesting to kind of like listen to it and try to understand it because like I, I feel like i want to kind of have more of that stuff in my future in, in my future stuff as well nobody else could have written a song like this at all even at the time even to this day nobody could have written a song like this brian wilson was the is, is the kind of guy who would do it and so, um, it's just, yeah, it's just one other thing that I love to mention is the ending of it. Like, you know, he used vocal rounds. I'm not sure if you guys know what vocal rounds are, but it just, it just repetitive over and over and over as the song, as the song fades out. And it's just like, how do you do it? It's a centuries old technique and it wasn't even used in popular music. So it's a very unique technique. And I mean, like I said, it's everyone's favorite, you know, Paul McCartney, he, even to this day, it's, that's his favorite song of all time. But other songwriters have, have mentioned how they were inspired by this song. Yeah, this is just another one of those songs that is just so omnipresent in culture that it's hard to like look back and actually judge it. But it's a lot more complex than Wouldn't It Be Nice in several ways, which actually makes that job a bit easier. It's very melodically soothing, but it has a sort of marching band beat to it that adds a more like pop forward element. You know, you can really hear the influence it had on stuff like the Beatles, All You Need Is Love, and even some of the Bee Gees early work like Turn of the Century. I think everyone wanted to have their own God Only Knows, but very few ever matched the simultaneous lyrical simplicity and complexity. It's an extremely basic love song at first glance, but then then with just that one line, God only knows what I'd be without you, it brings religion into it without actually making any kind of statement on Christianity at all. Right. And that's another thing. Uh, the fact that it talks about God in the lyrics, it's just like the radio programmers were just like, no, they did not want to play this song on their on their radio stations because they would it cause an outrage in Christian communities because, you know, they're bringing Christianity they're bringing a like, religion into this. Brian himself simply said that he, he he had the idea of, you know, of adding God into it because, you know, they, they did like a lot of prayer sessions, you know, during the production of the of God only knows. And they thought that this would be a good idea, you know, just to talk about the narrative only asserts that life without his lover could only be fathomed by God. It marked the departure for Wilson, but at the same time, you know, it's just, it's something new. That's really the purpose of that whole record, was to make something new. So something the Beach Boys had never made before, something that was on the rise, you know, that's why. And I think Brian saw that with Rubber Soul. He, he saw that a new movement of music was on the rise, and, he had, and they had to adapt. And God only knows was conceived as a result of that. And then there's that outro that just repeats the title line over and over with overlapping backing vocals, like you said. It's just it's just really good. And I didn't know this until listening to it for this episode, but the lead vocals are actually done by Carl Wilson, Brian's brother. Yes. Oh, I did not know that. So for the um the majority of the song, it was all the lead vocals were were Carl Wilson. Apparently, Brian mentioned 
that Carl's voice, Carl was like tired, you know, like I said, he, he did the majority of the song, so he couldn't do the, the ending of it. So as a result, it was just Brian and Bruce who did the, who did the, uh, the ending of the vocal rounds and everything. That was all Brian and Bruce. Track nine, I know there's an answer. Apparently the song was originally about drugs and then they changed it, which I'm mad about. I actually prefer Hold On To Your Ego. So yeah, the song was originally called Hang On To Your Ego. It was influenced by Brian Wilson's experience with LSD. Yeah, which is funny because there's another song on a previous record that was conceived as a result of the aftermath of his his first acid trip. And that song is uh, California Girls. Oh, really? Yeah, he conceived... He conceived California Girls right after his first acid trip, or maybe sometime after he was going through with withdrawals, and he ended up conceiving California Girls as a result of it. But yeah, uh, this song was inspired by his his, his experience, and um, all, not only his experience with LSD, but also his struggle with ego death. Yeah, I was actually going to bring that up. And I, I always thought like the idea of experiencing ego death in a song... It, to me is more interesting than saying that oh some people are uptight on the inside and are nice and peaceful on the outside and that kind of thing i, I thought that like the idea of like projection in lyrics is kind of boring so something as more abstract as ego death is to me more interesting which is why i like hang on to your ego a little bit more than uh, i know that, that there's an answer yeah honestly this one doesn't really do it for me. It's not like a love song, but the lyrics are just really pretentious about how the singer has everything figured out and other people don't. It just kind of rubs me the wrong way, you know? And I really don't like the harmonica solo. I think it sounds awful. Frankly, the only part of the song I really like is the ending instrumental that's almost a minute. That works really yeah. well. Everything else, not so much. One thing about the song is like it's just very like 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 the rest of the album. It's just the instrumentation is just you know very sophisticated. The like the, the arrangement is colorful. The structure is unorthodox, and there's a fucking bass harmonica solo. I just think uh, bike glove ruined the song personally. <laughs> bike bike glove. Bike bike Mike Mike <laughs> bike, bike glove. <laughs> I mean that's just typical. You know he's the he's always going to be the lead vocals vocalist for like most of the Beach Boys songs. So I mean they have to do event they have to do it somehow. You know even moving on to the next track. <laughs> yeah, track ten here today. Sort of a spin on I'm waiting for the day from the perspective of a bitter ex-boyfriend. He basically talks about, oh, this, so you love, you like this woman, right? I was with her at one point, so you, yeah, she's, she's bad news. You don't want to be with her. That's basically what the, the song is lyrically talking about. This song has like three separate really catchy parts sung by Mike Love, along with a relatively simple but compelling instrumental break. I think it adds some much needed variety as far as song topics go. And is a relatively easy listen that doesn't make you think too much. I like it. For me, uh, my enjoyment came from the instrumentals towards the end of it rather than the beginning. I don't know. I'm starting to notice that like towards the end of the tracks, things start getting put into perspective and I start enjoying it more. One thing that's interesting is that the bass guitar was a lead instrument. Yeah, that was really cool. And that's actually what um, Paul McCartney was inspired. Like the bass part of this song apparently was a direct influence to McCartney's bass playing on songs like uh, with a little help from my friends and getting better from Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah, I kind of hear it now that you so say you that. So you can tell, you can hear the influence from from just that, you know? I didn't notice, but now now I understand, because out of all the songs, I didn't really notice the bass guitar until I think this track, and I, it was much more um, in front. 
than it was in like the other tracks. So and then again, like I'm surprised at how well this entire thing has been mixed in mono because that's how I listen to it. Because yeah, I I don't I, I don't know if it's like this in the stereo one to be honest. Because like I mean I wanted to listen to it the way it was in t- originally recorded because. I listened in stereo because I don't want. I'm a purist. I'm sorry. I d- get that shit out of <laughs> my face. If I was face. listening on vinyl, I'd listen in mono. But no. Yeah, I, I couldn't get it in vinyl. No, I gotta no. listen to stereo. Not digitally. Digitally, I'm listening to things in stereo. I don't care. <laughs> but yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't really like this song until like towards the end of it. And I feel like this might be a first for me where I have to come back to this album and listen to it again because I feel like it's very much a slow burner so far at least that's my understanding of it like all these like this song in particular there are a couple tracks including this track that basically kind of recontextualize everything towards the end of the song thus making it far more interesting to listen to at least for me towards the end of the some of these tracks but like it's so weird because like the first half i don't really care for at least on first listen track 11 I just wasn't made for these times. The longest song on the album at only 3 minutes and 21 seconds, but that's pretty standard as far as mid-60s albums goes. This is my favorite track. Oh yeah, yeah, I can imagine it being your favorite track because, like, God only knows it's everyone's favorite, but, you know, it's played a lot, at least it's played everywhere, you know, I'm not sure if I can... But, like, with, with this one, I just wasn't made for these times. It's very interesting the way it was composed and the way it was written. So, lyrics describe the disillusionment of someone who struggles to fit into society. So obviously you you feel you're more advanced than other people. You feel that they um they will they wouldn't understand you or whatnot. So I feel like this is like a personal song that Brian must have written or Tony Asher must have written for Brian. And so musically, it's very interesting how the how how it is. Apparently, this is actually the first time in history when a theremin like instrument was used in pop music. So like there's never been like it was the first time an electro theremin was used in um pop music i'm not i'm sure you guys have probably heard about the theremin yeah 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 so they this is the first time in pop music this was used so and i guess brian was really infatuated by the sound of the electro theremin played by the inventor paul tanner i think his name is paul tanner he wasn't brought into the session to play for um this for for this song and it was also brought into the session for good vibrations as well and um all six members were in this song and i think i want to mention the vocals there's like a there's like a part in the vocals where um sometimes i feel very sad there's four layers so apparently i'm not sure if you heard it but they're actually speaking spanish like if you see the acapella there's backing vocals them speaking spanish and you combine it with the instrumental it's like oh it's just wow you know it's amazing how they made this song i still talk about it it's just god only knows is, is great but like this one i mean i don't even know how this this one is just amazing it's a bit of a different look at the pretentiousness of I know there's an answer, but instead of lamenting that he can't change other people's lives, he's lamenting about not really fitting in with how adventurous and experimental he's trying to be. The backing vocals are really different here, almost like they're doing their own thing during the chorus rather than complimenting the lead. And speaking of the lead, Brian delivers some of his strongest vocals on this track on lines like, they say I got brains, but they ain't doing me no good. And yeah. where can I turn when my fair weather friends cop out? So good. And there's also something like strangely compelling about how he sings the title of the song, particularly at the end where it does an overlapping thing like in God Only Knows. Really interesting song for sure. Yeah, definitely one of the most interesting on the album. I didn't know that they were speaking Spanish. 
in the song or in the backing. I, I never, I guess, paid attention or too close attention because in the mono, I focus on the um, instrumentals. I thought that the usage of like a much heavier focus on the drums was refreshing and very interesting. I see what you mean. Yeah, the drums in this track are emphasized. That's another thing. The percussion you can you can hear. I, I just like in God only knows they, they use like orange juice cups. Apparently, they just it's just a very <laughs> no seriously. If you were looking at the personnel for God only knows, they use orange juice cups. Um, it's just a very interesting like use of everyday objects that use this percussion, and especially with temple blocks was uh, common. Well, it wasn't common at the time, but it was becoming common to use temple blocks as, as percussion for popular music. But uh, and then it cups with sticks. Apparently, that's another one that they use for "I Just Wasn't Made for These Times." But yeah, it's very interesting way of percussion throughout this album they just use like weird percussive methods. But otherwise, it's basically this one is a really fine example of how they did it. Track 12, the title track, Pet Sounds, another instrumental track. Are those fucking jingle bells? Those are jingle bells, just like in God only knows. I'm just surprised that they decided to make this the title track. It's an instrumental Oh yeah, fun fact, the song was originally called um, Run James Run. It was intended to be a theme for a James Bond film. Oh, love that. Interesting. Yes, uh, apparently he, he wrote that as for the intention of it being a, a, a theme for a James Bond film. And I thought, oh, that's just the intro. That's, <laughs> I listened back, I'm just like, I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't think James Bond when I heard this. No, me neither. Not like Live and Let Die, like what, what Paul McCartney wrote. Again, another song that has uh, interesting um, percussive methods. Some guy named Richie For Frost was involved, did, did most of the percussion. He, but also he did like, uh, he used Coca-Cola cans with sticks. But yeah, I mean, this is the second, this is the last instrumental on the album. Title track, of course. Apparently the genre is exotica. And I guess you guys can probably figure that out yourself. Interesting. Yeah. That makes sense to me. There are really two ways to do an instrumental rock song, and I think this album demonstrates both of them really nicely. In this case, the track is driven by a lead guitar melody line, almost as if it could have vocals added to it. Honestly, much like how there was a song earlier that I said might be better as an instrumental, this one might be better with vocals. But even without it, I find it more enjoyable than Let's Go Away for a while. But it is 100% a Christmas song. I agree on the fact that it is more enjoyable to listen to than the other instrumental piece in this album. It's funny, they don't say Jingle Bells here anywhere. <laughs> or, or, yeah, or, I was looking oh, for that. Okay, okay, There's, there is the tambourine, but... <laughs> that's, I, probably, I guess, that's probably it, but it sounds like Jingle Bells. Tambourines are used widely throughout the album, but it's just that, I guess, in this song, it sounds like, you know, it sounds almost like it's like Jingle Bells, like it's a Christmas song or something. You know what? The pet sounds... Are Santa's reindeer. They're the pets. They're the pets making the sounds. <laughs> we figured it out. We solved it. We 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 figured out what Brian was intending. We should move on to the next track. Actually, it's, it's quite yeah. interesting. Okay, track thirteen, the final track, Caroline. No, uh, the first single. Although it's not technically a Beach Boys song, as it no. was released as a Brian Wilson solo single. Much yep. like Careless Whisper by George Michael was later released on a Wham! album despite being a solo track. Let me guess, Bike Glove fucking got credits to this one too, didn't he? No. No, no. Okay, Brian thank Wilson God. This, solo. This, was all, this was just Brian Wilson and Tony Asher, but it was credited as like a solo song by Brian. Cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, which is weird because like the majority of the album was basically just Brian doing solo vocals in it with instrumentation by the Wrecking Crew. So I guess this is like the one song he wanted to just dedicate to himself. 
I finally realized that the reason it's called Pet Sounds is because there's it's a because dog. Of the, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's barking with at the fucking end. dog. Yeah, with more than half a minute left in the song, it fades out on a soothing instrumental line and then fades back in with train with, sounds. With, with train it's, sounds it's a field and a dog's barking. It's, it's, it's literal it, pet sounds. Amazing. It's, well, it's yeah. a field recording. And I think it's so interesting that this album decides to end off on a, like a field recording. And I, I mean, I get the idea behind why I guess theoretically some people could call this like a like a concept album because literally field recording. But the usage of the field recording is pretty interesting because um, nowhere else in this entire album does it really have anything like it. But I had no idea that a haircut could be this important. No. <laughs> I, I did like uh, well, the song. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. So lyrically on this album, I mean, I want to just talk about the song lyrically. Like, it's just like, yeah. he's just talking about a woman he once knew years back. And then years later, she loses her innocence. She becomes a whole different person. She looks different. It's just, it's basically, who who are you? Who was who this woman I once knew? What do you, what have you, what have you done to yourself? It's basically what he's doing. It's basically the lyrics and the lyrical content in this track. Is that? It says even right here, Asher credited the impetus for this song to Wilson's disappointment with sweet little girls who grow up to bitchy, hardened adults. I hate that. Oh, I <laughs> hate that, actually. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's terrible. It's, it's terrible, yeah. Well. No, yeah. That's basically the inspiration of the song. It's just that's not what I thought it was about at all. I thought it was a breakup song. No, I was gonna it was, say, it was, gonna no, say it, was it was about you fall in love with a girl years back, and then she, you break up with her, and then you see her again a few years later, and you're like, "What the fuck happened to you?" <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, I didn't even get that. Well, yeah, apparently this is one of Brian's favorite personal compositions, and I was gonna say it's really heartbreaking, but now I disagree. But it's got a really dreamlike, echoey drum, more smooth vocal vocals from Brian, and the occasional falsetto line. It's really pleasant to listen to. Yeah. Oh, is that all? That's Did it. Did we do it? Did yeah. we listen to... Is it time to give our final thoughts on Pet Sounds? Who wants to go first? I guess. Here, let me let me do it. Let me do it. I'll, I'll do it. After I was done listening to the album, I felt like it was very grandiose, but it wasn't trying to actually be that, and so it was very interesting. I guess I'd compare it to, like, watching a movie, even though this is just listening to an album. I would compare it in that sense. Everything fit together very well, and then despite my issues with how sometimes it fades out and it's just kind of weird, like I, I, I almost didn't care because everything just kind of fit in its place. All the songs, and and so I thought this as a whole was very interesting and I, I, very compelling, and I'll probably return to it at some point because I did like um a lot of the songs, but not all of them. Yeah, I see what you mean. For me, I'll say there's no denying how massively influential and frankly revolutionary this album was for its time. It used a lot of recording techniques that later became standards for pop and rock music. It did the wall of sound better than Phil Spector ever did it himself. And I don't even like the wall of sound generally. And without Pet Sounds, we wouldn't have Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or any of the other late Beatles albums. And for that alone, it deserves all the praise in the world. But I do think as its own thing, it's a little overrated. I definitely don't think there's very much bad on it, but as far as songs I really liked, it pretty much was just Don't Talk and Sloop John B. But I can appreciate the composition of all the other songs, save for maybe I Know There's an Answer. And I know, this is probably blasphemy, but even from a standpoint looking at its influence, first we had the Beatles' Rubber Soul, then that was topped by this, then not long after we had the Beatles' Revolver, which I would argue matches if not gets very close to accomplishing what Pet Sounds does, 
And then, in my opinion, Sergeant Pepper blows this out of the water. And honestly, and this is a whole other conversation, if the follow-up album Smile had come out as it was intended, it might have topped even Sgt. Pepper. The groundwork is certainly here for that. But in my opinion, this doesn't even get close. But if for no other reason than its instrumental and occasionally vocal complexity, Brian Wilson is a genius. Brian Wilson is a genius, yes. And that was the tagline. I think they used that tagline for Pet Sounds, and then they continued to use that tagline after the success of Good Vibrations. Because, like, you know, after this album came out, you know, like I said before, it wasn't wasn't as commercially successful, or critically and commercially successful in the United States, but then it got a different um, reaction in the UK. You know, they, they promoted it as the most progressive pop album. And, and I was just like, I'm just thinking, you know, and yeah, and you look at other pop songs nowadays and you can tell there's Pet Sound influence. At the time, I mean, you can say, oh, this is like one of the first few psychedelic rock albums. And it is true. It is one of the, it is one of the first, but it doesn't mean that it was like the very first. I mean, it was still like a relatively new genre. I mean, I think in fact, it was just like, but it was like really, really in its infancy, psychedelic and progressive rock. I mean, they didn't conceive it, but what this album did was that it brought it uh, on the map. Because we're talking about an, uh, a band of that stature at the time, the Beach Boys, how popular they were in the United States and the UK, and even in the UK, they brought it. They they basically brought this genre on the map. Psychedelic music. I mean, you have uh, even with um, what's the song called? Um, by the Doors, uh, Light My Fire. Light My Fire was a psychedelic rock song that came out in 1967. So um, what I'm saying is, with with the with this album coming out. It put the genre on the map. It gave other artists ideas to make, to, to try out their own stuff. And that's, so the Beatles weren't even the only artists who even considered like trying out new things in the studio. Everyone did it. And it, it just continued later on. I mean, the, the debut record of Pink Floyd came out the year after Pet Sounds, 1967. And I think Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Yeah, that was 1967. That was a psychedelic record. I would argue that it wasn't entirely, didn't really incorporate any idea, any like, style or ideas from pet sounds but rather it's still a psychedelic record it's a new thing that's coming out and it's a popular a popular thing i feel like pet sounds basically brought, did that it basically gave psychedelic music a um it put it on the forefront of the music industry and a new idea a new idea that new artists can incorporate and old artists can incorporate you know and then even like the records the recording studio as an instrument that's another thing i mean that's a big thing in fact with the wall of sound being used it's basically just every artist every oh every musician just cooped up in one one room just playing instruments like blasting him bouncing and bouncing from from wall to wall which is why it's called the wall of sound it just continuously plays over and over but instead of it just being um instead of it just being recorded individually it's recorded all together as one with minimal overdubs but otherwise it's mo- the majority of the instruments were all recorded in the same in that in that one session and that's what i i, I appreciate that i mean that's probably why you're not going to see any multi-tracks on this album because of the fact that it was recorded all together as one you know with minimal overdubs but otherwise it's just that it, there's only a backing track and a vocal track. It really just revolutionized music production. It garnered recognition for the production, the music, and the emotional lyrical content. 
it introduced novel approaches to orchestration, chord voicing, structural harmonies. It further the, the cultural legitimization of popular music. It had a greater public appreciation for albums. Maybe I think singles are probably, you know, the, the big thing at the time. You know, people were more infatuated to singles. And with Pet Sounds coming out, albums, they, they tend to take the time to appreciate albums more. Pet Sounds did not only influence Sgt. Pepper's, but it influenced all the vast majority of pop music. If, if, a song, if, if Pet Sounds didn't come out, we don't know where pop music would go. That's all I can say. That is true. Yes. But wait, you still believe in me. And I know there's oh, still a, there. Don't talk. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I just wasn't made for these times. Oh my god. I'm gonna be waiting for oh that my day. God. Oh my god. Wouldn't it Yo. be nice? Oh my god. It'd be nice if you shut the fuck up. God only knows. <laughs> god only knows you're not going to. Yep. That's not me. All right. All right. D music recommendations. So let's uh, go for. Do y'all have songs? Let's. So let's you go wanna, away for a while. Do y'all have songs you wanna you wanna recommend to our audience, please? From the please album or just them? in general? No, any song. Song we do song recommendations at the end. Uh, we just say something that we've been listening to. The new single from Black Midi, Sugar Sue. I believe it's pronounced. If I'm not pronouncing that right, please write me an email at this webzone. Webzone. Okay. Don't worry, you'll find me at AOL. I'm gonna recommend a song from Journey's new album, Freedom, just came out the other week. Uh, the song is, I'm gonna recommend is Don't Give Up On Us. Just really good. The whole album's really good, in my opinion. Frickin' Journey is just as good as they've ever been, even with their current lead vocalist, Arnel Panetta. I fucking love it. Don't Give Up On Us by Journey. Wait, we're talking new songs? No. Any song. Any song you want to recommend ever any song anything. that i want to recommend just give just, us give us anything i guess i can talk about another beach another beach boys song i just I started listening it. to so uh before they released pet sounds or rather during the production of pet sounds there was a song called the little the little girl i once knew and you can tell that this was a pet that this was like made in that era because of the way it sounds and whatnot um i think what's his name uh john lennon reviewed the album and acclaimed it he said it to Melody Maker on December 1965. This is exactly what he said, and I quote, This is the greatest. Turn it up. Turn it right up. It's got to be a hit. It's the greatest record I've heard for weeks. It's fantastic. I hope it will be a hit. It's all Brian Wilson. He just uses the voices as instruments. He never tours or anything. He just sits at home thinking up fantastic arrangements out of his head. Doesn't even read music. You keep waiting for the, fa the fabulous breaks. Great arrangement. It goes on and on with all different things. I hope it's a hit so I can hear it all the time. Yes, that John Lennon did say that. So yeah, the little girl I once knew by the Beach Boys. Love it. Cool. Loved having you on. Really glad we could do this. I think it turned out really well. Uh, why don't you tell the people at home where they can like find you on like social media and stuff? Like, if you're putting out any content, whatnot. If I'm putting on any content, all right. Well, well. Yeah. So look into this camera. I don't, I... Tell the world what you <laughs> oh are going to do. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm not sure if you see my name, but my name is uh, SMUS16475. That's my name on both Twitter and YouTube. So if and I, my um my name on on SoundCloud is Eman. That's E dash man. So E hyphen man. So but so if you want to see any of my content, whether it's like music or see any memes I work on or any other videos or whatnot or even live streams, uh, that's just it. I only publish there on YouTube, Twitter, and SoundCloud. So if you guys want to take the time to uh, watch any of my stuff or listen to my stuff, then by all means, I publish every once in a while. I tweet a lot every day. <laughs> all right. Thanks for being on on a Friday. Hell yeah. We will be back with an album picked by Andrew and it'll be really fun. And yeah, this has been on a Friday. God only knows what an ending would be.